Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church of Murfreesboro. It is an honor and privilege to share this time with you. We love studying the scriptures and feel they are central to our preaching, teaching, and living of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Our mission here is to grow disciples of Jesus Christ who know him, love him, and serve him for the transformation of Murfreesboro and the world. It is our prayer that God would use our preaching and teaching to do exactly that. If you have questions, thoughts, ideas, or just want to talk a little bit more about what you've heard today, we love to hear from you. Most of all, know that you are in our prayers as we listen together. Now, let's dive in. We're going to hear from John's gospel, chapter 4. You're going to feel like I'm reading the whole chapter. Uh, I'm not. I'm just reading some of it. But, you know, when it comes to Scripture, I think if some is good, more is better. So we'll just, we'll just read and keep reading John, chapter 4. Let's pray together before we do. Oh, God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We're grateful for time to worship. Pour out your Holy Spirit on your word among us. Open our hearts and minds to what you say to us today. In the name of Jesus, the risen one, we pray. Amen. John chapter 4, uh, where do y'all start with, your, with the one? Okay, I'm going to go just a little bit before that so we can read even more. Uh, uh, Jesus has been in, in Judea and he's going back to Galilee and so he's got to go through Samaria. He comes near a Samaritan city called Sychar near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. This is way back in the time of the Hebrew people. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon and now we pick up in verse 7. Let us hear the word of God. A Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, uh, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, Jacob, who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty the water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, uh, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. <laughs> What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is Jerusalem. 
Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. It actually says, I am speaking to you, much like we hear Moses saying to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, who sent you? Moses is told to say, I am sent me to you. I am speaking here, Jesus says. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Now verse 39, many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world, the word of God for the people of God. And so we say, thanks be to God. There is great power in our witness as followers of Christ when our words and our deeds, our actions, match. There is great power in our witness when our words and our deeds match. There is great pain when they don't. Let's hear a word from Mr. Rogers just one more time from me in this series One thing that people's mouths do that most other creatures don't do is say words like I'm saying words to you right now. Isn't it wonderful that I can say certain words to you and you can understand what I mean? But you know what's even more important than saying words? It's the things we do, the things that our hearts understand. When people say they love you, that can give you a very good feeling. But when they do things that show you that they love you, that can give you some of the best feelings of all. It's such a good feeling to know you're alive. It's such a happy feeling you're growing inside. And when you wake up ready to say, I think I'll make a snappy new day. It's such a good feeling, a very good feeling, the feeling you know that I'll be back when the week is new and I'll have more ideas for you and you'll have things you'll want to talk about. I 
will to you know that's why I come back to visit each time because I want to show you that people can love you exactly as you are I'll be back next time goodbye When our words and our deeds match, we're speaking a language that hearts understand. Mr. Rogers had a very unique way of describing that and communicating that to all of us as children. We live now in a time of great division and judgment and even hate. I'm inclined to think that it's as bad as it has ever been. Some folks have written and said it's worse than it has ever been, and maybe they're right. But we could learn a thing or two about division and judgment from the Jews and Samaritans of Jesus' day. <laughs> they, uh, they knew how to do it. Their division goes back a very long time. After the golden age of King David and his son, King Solomon, the, the Hebrew people, God's people, split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Some from the northern kingdom wound up in this area where Jesus is traveling in John chapter 4. They, uh, they mingled a bit too much with the native peoples there. I think mingled is the right word to use in this audience. They mingled with those people a bit too much. <laughs> There was idolatry there. These Samaritans, as they came to be called, they dabbled in worshiping seven different kinds of gods. Somewhere along the way, these Samaritans uh, even rejected everything in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, except for the Pentateuch, the first five books. They just wanted what Moses said. They didn't want any of this other stuff from the major and the minor prophets. They just wanted what, what does Moses say? That's all they wanted. The rest of the Jewish people looked down on the Samaritans, especially when they learned that Samaritan Bibles actually had an alteration in the text about the holy mountain. For the Samaritans, their Bible said the holy mountain is not Mount Zion in Jerusalem. It is actually Mount Gerizim, very near to where Jesus is in this chapter. This was at first just kind of a mild irritant to uh, the rest of Israel until the rest of Israel was taken into exile by the Babylonians. The Samaritans managed to escape exile with creative and ungodly alliances of all kinds. And then these half-breeds even allowed Alexander the Great to build them a very fine temple on Mount Gerizim. That happened about the same time as the rest of the Jews, excuse me, the real Jews were returning from the Babylonian exile and had to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem with their own money, their own hands, their own effort, not Alexander the Great's. Now we've got two temples. We've got two houses for God, two seats of authority for God's people. One built by the righteous, righteous Jewish nation, which has been faithful during a painful exile. The other built by a conniving, idolatrous people who have twisted the scriptures to suit their own needs and used the wealth and favor of a foreign nation to bless themselves with their own house for God. Can you imagine the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans? Can you imagine how bad that was? You hadn't heard anything. Yet about 128 years before Jesus was born, the high priest from Jerusalem went down to Mount Gerizim and 
to make things absolutely clear, destroyed the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim to say once and for all, no, you people are wrong. You are not part of us. That's what he did. That was 128 years before Jesus. That was the high point of the tension. Now we've got all this division and judgment and hate. It's been baked in for at least 12 generations since that moment. It's just been baked into the culture of the Jewish and Samaritan conflict. If you, if you had a sweet Southern Belle grandmother, some of you know what I'm talking about, who was still angry about the war of Northern aggression, okay? That's the Civil War for some folks that may not know. If you had a grandmother like that, you have a little taste of what the Jewish and Samaritan conflict might have been like. If you don't drive Japanese cars in your family because your granddaddy fought in the Pacific in World War II, that's another little taste about what this feels like. If, if you have ever had somebody look at a political bumper sticker on your car and give one of these, hmm, hmm, that's another little taste, just a little taste of what it would be like to have a conversation between a Jew and a Samaritan. If you have ever had somebody tell you that Methodists aren't real Christians, <laughs> That's another taste of what it was like to be a Samaritan. And add to that, they're treating you as less than human and too far gone for even God to save you. That's what we're dealing with in this conversation between Jews and Samaritans. Now, in John chapter 4, we have Jesus, a faithful Jewish rabbi, talking to a wicked Samaritan woman. That's what's going on now. Jesus creates an over-the-top scene to definitively communicate the nature of his ministry so that we cannot miss the point even if we try to miss the point. You can't miss what Jesus is saying here. Let's just get all the stereotypes out on the table. Nobody could have been less worthy to hear or carry the message of Jesus than this no-good person from the off-limits people. She's a Samaritan, a woman, a polygamist, an adulterer, and an idolater. Five strikes against this woman. That's who Jesus is talking to outside this well. The disciples are shocked that Jesus is even talking to her. Wait till they hear what he's saying to her. He asks her for some water. She says, man, what are you doing asking me for some water? I'm a wicked Samaritan, remember? You people don't mix with us. He says, oh, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for water and I would give you living water. She said, where are you going to get that living water? You don't even have a bucket. He says, drink from this water, you'll be thirsty again. But if you drink from the water that I have, you will never be thirsty. It'll be a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. They have that little back and forth about her five husbands and the man she's got now. That's so funny, I think, to read through that. She shifts into a faith conversation when she recognizes she's dealing with a prophet of some kind. Sir, she says, our ancestors worshiped on Mount Gerizim, but you say we have to worship in Jerusalem. In her very plain language, she's raising that ancient question about the true seat of authority and power for the Hebrew people, for all the Hebrew people. It is either Gerizim or Zion. It can't be both temples. It can't be both. We're having this fight right now all the time amongst the Christian people today. We're still having this same fight. Where is the true seat of authority and power? Is it the church? 
Is it a literal interpretation of Scripture? Is it narrative, metaphorical, allegorical? Is it Scripture first and then tradition, reason, experience? Is it somehow all four of those things together? Is experience primary and then Scripture secondary? It's the same question 2,000 years later. Where is the seat of authority and power? Pay attention. Pay attention to how Jesus answers her question. Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. In other words, we both think we're right. And Jesus throws in too, we are right. Salvation will come from my people. (laughs) But the hour is here. The hour is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Where is the true seat of authority and power? The living God. The living God alone. That's the seat of authority and power. The temple and the holy mountain, very important, but not God. The scriptures reveal God to us, but the scriptures are not God. Our life experience is vital, absolutely vital, but it isn't God either. What is Jesus doing? He is elevating the conversation above hundreds of years of division and hate fueled by theological arguments which miss the point of God saving the world. And he does this while breaking some of society's most important social and religious conventions which have gotten in the way of people's ability to be in relationship with the living God. What does it mean that the seat of authority and power is the living God? It means that the truest expression of our Christian faith can only come through our relationship with the living God. That is why we must worship in spirit and truth. The scriptures guide us into truth. Our prayers connect us with the Holy Spirit. Our acts of service and devotion put us in the places where God is calling us, and we remain open, always open, to the dynamic movement of the living God in our day-to-day, often putting us in strange and wonderful places where we are surprised to see God working. We who are charged with continuing the ministry of Jesus would do well to learn from Jesus right here in John chapter 4. Jesus shows us how to practice something which we might call full acceptance despite full knowledge. He knows everything about this wicked woman. He knows everything about the wicked Samaritans, centuries of idol worshiping and wildness. There is no naivete in Jesus here. He knows what's up with these people. He knows who they are. Still, He looks at them and sees what can be. People who will come to believe in him and find this incredible new life welling up like streams of living water. He sees witness bearers who will share his good news. Jesus looks at this woman and refuses to see Samaritan, woman, polygamist, adulterer, idolater. Instead, He sees what can be. He sees it so clearly that he's willing to embarrass himself to offer living water to this beloved child of God and a whole nation of outcasts. 
Imagine if the same man who just in chapter 3 said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Imagine if that same man had looked at this woman and said, well, that's not actually for you. I didn't mean you. Imagine if he had said that. In our day and time, we must be so careful. Sometimes the church's deeds and words and fights and Facebook posts and ways of doing things, sometimes we tell the world exactly that, for God so loved everybody but (laughs) y'all. Sometimes we say that. We have to be so careful. Jesus wants us to see people with his eyes, to share streams of living water with even the Samaritans. We can and should have all of our social conventions and theological ideas, but they must never get in the way of people meeting Jesus, who is the one true God come to save the whole world. When our words and deeds match, we are speaking a language that every human heart understands, and there is great power to our witness. If your witness to Jesus is making religious people nervous because of who you're reaching, you are probably on the right track. Go, give a good witness to this good news for all people. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, may the people of God say, Amen.